The savings rock when you find a new way to roll. Like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, commuter connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How you doing? Ben Kissel here, hanging out with Fernando. Hey, Ben. Hey, Fernando. And from the Bahamas, Travis Irvine. I'm still in the Bahamas, Ben, and I love every minute of it. I hope you do. (laughs) And you will love every minute of this episode. We are so honored to have this guest with us. It's Ken Burns. He is the ultimate documentarian, perhaps the greatest documentarian of all time. Dare I say, yes, indeed, the greatest documentarian ever. Uh, We talk about his new documentary, Muhammad Ali, which airs September 19th on PBS. This conversation, I really think the audience is going to love it. What did you guys think? Uh, I was fascinated the entire time. Ken Burns, I've been such a big fan of his documentaries since I was a kid. The Civil War documentary he did back in the 90s inspired literally a family trip to Gettysburg. So it doesn't get much nerdier <laughs> than that. I'm very excited for this. Absolutely. I I wanted to ask him, you know, as a documentarian, he's seen America in and out. Yeah. So I, I got to ask him a question that I really wanted to ask. And yeah. so I'm really, I was so excited. And he gave us so much time. We're so grateful for Ken Burns, uh, to Ken Burns. And uh, for everyone who worked on this fantastic documentary, if you can see it, see it. September 19th, again, on PBS, Muhammad Ali, a man who is uh, constantly important, just someone mm-hmm. who his life, as we talk about in the interview, in any timeline, Muhammad Ali is some, is a special person. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy uh, this interview with Ken Burns. All right, now we are joined by legendary documentarian, the greatest documentarian of all time, who has a brand new documentary coming out called Muhammad Ali. It premieres September 19th on PBS. Ken Burns is with us. Ken, thank you so much for being on the show, man. It's great to be on with you, uh, Ben and Travis. Um, I do want to say that this is a film co-directed by Sarah Burns, my daughter, and her husband, David McMahon. They also wrote the script, and along with Stephanie Jenkins, the four of us produced it. So sometimes, you know, when you're up front and it's attributed to you, there's a whole bunch of people right there, and then a lot of people behind us that have made it possible. Absolutely. And thank you so much for giving credit to them. Also, Fernando is with us. So you might hear uh, Fernando uh, chirp in as well. Hey, Fernando. Um, So I just want to start talking because, first of all, I love your style of documentary 
where you don't put yourself in front of the camera, you roll out the story, you roll out the narrative in a way that is just so unbelievably compelling and interesting and makes the viewer feel like they're almost guiding the journey, which kind of brings me to my first question. Uh, episode three, and I don't want to spoil anything. I will spoil a little bit. We don't want to spoil too much of the documentary. But Angelo Dundee, he was the trainer for Muhammad Ali. And uh, he said something or his actions uh, inferred something that made me think of you as a matter of fact. And I think that makes sense because in many ways, you guys are both educators. Angelo Dundee talked about how he didn't train Ali. He guided Ali because right. you can't sit there and tell Ali what to do because, quite frankly, the dudes, when it comes to boxing, is an uber genius, and you're just going <laughs> to screw up. You're just going to muck up the process. And I thought of you when I heard that strategy of don't train, guide. Could you tell our audience a little bit about just your approach to documentary filmmaking and how do you unfurl a story in a way that is – you know, by the end of this eight hours last night, I was like, shit, I could go for three more. Like, how do you do that? Well, I, I think it's first and foremost, and that's a wonderful and very complex and thoughtful question, Ben. I think in the first place, we feel a responsibility to the viewer's attention. So we're storytellers, you know, right. and telling a story involves not letting anyone, as we put it in the editing room, as I put it, I don't want anybody to fall out at any time. Mm -hmm. So the presumption you might have is that this is an additive process, like building a house. And it is a little bit, but it's much more of a subtractive process. I'm, mm. I've lived for 42 years this week uh, in, in New Hampshire, and we make maple syrup, and it takes 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. And that's right. exactly what we do. For every eight hours of the finished film, Muhammad Ali, we have looked at 40 or 50 times that much material. And so we're always aware of the negative space of creation. You know what I'm saying? That yeah. which is not there. The, the block of stone is brought to the sculptress's studio, and what we see in the gallery or the museum is, is the end brought. But she has to honor what's on the floor. And what's on the floor isn't bad. It could have been in it. And so we want to get out of the way. And so rather than tell you what we know about Muhammad Ali, we'd rather share with you our process of discovery, which is so much better than, oh, by the way, there's a test next Tuesday, than saying, you'll never guess what we just learned. And so a traditional production would have a period of research, three weeks, three months, a period of writing, three weeks, three months, out of which was produced a script that would inform the, the shooting and the editing, boom, done. We never stop researching mm -hmm. and we never stop writing. And so we're corrigible to the end. We want to learn things to the very end. I've got a neon yeah. sign in my editing room that says in cursive, lowercase, it's complicated. Like yeah. no filmmaker wants to change a scene that's working. We always do that. We find out that, well, you know, that's the conventional wisdom. It really wasn't quite like that. It was this way. And, and you say, oh, gee, and then you change it. And maybe it's not as great as it was before, but maybe it's made the, the previous scene or the succeeding scene that much better because what you've done is you've given layers of meaning and complexity. There's undertow. No villain is 100% bad. No hero is without flaws. And that's exactly how life is. And so... What we're doing is we're, you know, we're following the same laws of storytelling that Hollywood 
directors do. We just can't right. make stuff up. I mean, I had a conversation. I interviewed Steven Spielberg on a stage in Washington, D.C., and we just sort of looked at each other like, oh, my God, we're doing the same thing. Yeah. His budget's probably one budget equals everything I've done in my lifetime. <laughs> but he also has to obey the same laws of storytelling. So what I'm conscious of that at every moment. We're conscious of that every moment. Right. And we're really trying to serve you. And the other thing is that it's all about process for us. When we finally lock the film and put the name on it and it comes out on September 19th, that's, you know, that's it. But I'm already working on several other films. I've got four different producing teams. This represents one of those teams. That team is already working on one and two other films. And so we kind of look in 10-year plans. You know, I like to say it's kind of like Stalinist five or 10-year plans where you're looking ahead. <laughs> so there are eight projects that I'm working on in various stages of completion in the case of Ali, but we're now in the evangelistic side of it and others that are in the editing room, two or three of those, and some that we're shooting and some are early in conception, working on scripts and, and developing treatments kind of thing. So all of that means that all I want to do is put my head on the pillow at the end of the day and say, I've made at least one of those uh, babies better. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Ken Burns, the Stalin of documentaries. <laughs> yes, yes, Isn't that right, exactly. No, no, no purges, no purges. <laughs> we don't, we don't, we, we have a rule. I have a rule, which is that we don't yell. You know, this is not brain surgery. And I'm not sure that yelling in brain surgery is a good idea either. But I not do Not unless you're on the table. We're just making documentary films and and we listen to everybody. We respect everybody. And uh, I do the dishes at lunchtime. Well, you mentioned how Spielberg, of course, works in a world of fiction, but thankfully, because uh, humans are so unique and uh, stories themselves are so insane, you can work in a world of reality. Yeah. And the story uh, is so much more complex than even a motion picture could capture. When it comes to learning, one of the things that I learned, and I think everyone will learn once they see this entire four-part series, and please watch the entire series because uh, you, you think you know what's going on, and then by the end, your, your mind is expanded in a way uh, that it never has been before. When it comes to Muhammad Ali, one of the things that I learned was, this dude is controversial in 2021. Mm -hmm. Like this is not like this documentary, Muhammad Ali as an entity, I feel like you could put him in any timeline and he would be like, oh, yeah, he's controversial. Was that something that you were surprised about or what are your insights on that? Well, not surprised anymore, but I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, um, people like to say that history repeats itself. It never, ever has, ever. Uh, Mark Twain is supposed to have said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm. And I like that mm. if he did say it, because there's never been a moment when we've finished a film where it's really hard to make these films. It's really hard. It takes years. We've been working on it for years. And so often the first question I get is, why, why Muhammad Ali now? And you go, now? I made the decision in 2012. We started working in 2014. The now is now right. that we happen to be done. You know, Vietnam was 10 and a half years from, yep. Oh. The so broadcast, so, but it always rhymes in the present. And that's because human nature doesn't change. Now, you're absolutely right that in many ways, some part of the feature film world is beset by the endless regurgitation of the same plots. And that reality, which is having its, and, and I would include the past in that, which is having a kind of golden age now, is um, not liberated from the laws of story, but liberated from the limitations of conventional plot. You know, where you see a movie and you go, oh, she's going to die. 
Right. right. And and you know from the time that person makes the entrance because it's just lawful. It can't not happen that way. Um, but but I think that the what is and what was my beat is as dramatic as anything. And our job is to sort of say that and remind people that Muhammad Ali, the greatest athlete of the 20th century, arguably, and we can go to a bar and have a fight about it, yeah. uh, the greatest athlete of all times, was at the intersection of all of the major issues of the second half of the 20th century, race, faith, religion, politics, war, mm-hmm. Now, with regard to his personal life, Me Too, obviously Black Lives Matter, it's it's really amazingly complex. And so he speaks to this moment because those things never change. All of those things are around today. They're 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 not repeating, but human na- because human nature doesn't change, we're we're still struggling with the you know the the four hundred and two year old virus of racial uh, discrimination and white supremacy. We're dealing with the age old human virus of lying and misinformation and disinformation and paranoia. All of that has been part of the human condition. And so when you have somebody like Muhammad Ali, there's several moments in the film, and I know you probably remember, Ben, it's sort of prescient. He he wins, and I'm a spoiler alert, He the Supreme Court decides in his favor on a technicality, not yes. on a precedent-setting thing, and he's now liberated from a five-year jail term. And somebody, the first reporter that gets him says, you know what, tell us what you think about the system. And he goes, well, I don't know who's going to be assassinated tonight. I don't know who's going to lose, what, what kind of injustice or inequality is going to be visited upon my brother or sister. Mm-hmm. And he's thinking back 350 years past Emmett Till, who was just about his age, who was murdered and tortured and whose open casket his mother bravely presented to the world in Jet Magazine, ran those photographs, and a young Muhammad Ali, the same age, about saw those photographs, and that's what happens if you whistle at a white woman in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these life-changing things, but back 350 years, but he's also looking ahead. He doesn't know about Rodney King. He doesn't know about Trayvon Martin. He doesn't know about Breonna Taylor. He doesn't know about George Floyd, but they're coming, and they're going to keep coming. So Muhammad Ali is going to speak to us forever. Right. So when it comes to his relationship with race, Muhammad Ali, one of the complexities that I thought was so fascinating, of course, when he uh, joined up with Elijah Muhammad, the Nation of Islam was like, dude, stop boxing. He's like, well, I'm really good at it. And they're like, okay, if you win, you can stay. (laughs) Basically, he had to win to stay in. Uh, That was what I, of course, gathered. So I'm not sure if that's a a correct assumption or not. but when it came to his childhood, his father obviously being very uh, racially active and, and uh, you know, uh, one of the moments that was so devastating was when uh, Muhammad Ali asked his father, of course, at the time he was Cassius Clay, asked his father, why can't we be rich? And his father points uh, to the color of his skin. It's hard, I think, for people now, or perhaps it's not, but I think it's important to remember what a detriment that truly was. What a almost scarlet letter that was. How do you think that influenced his rise when it came to the Nation of Islam and really a, a very aggressive a pro-segregationist view uh, is what he sort of adopted because of Elijah Muhammad. Meanwhile, of course, he's in the very white world of boxing. They have many, many images of him around a table and they all look, uh, you know, as if they are bankers and lawyers and they're not getting in the ring themselves. That's for dang sure. 
how did you, when you, when you were thinking about this, like, how do you couple these two things where you have someone, and this is what he said. He, he said that he agreed with George Wallace, which right. I felt like John F. Kennedy. I thought my brain was going to explode. And I'm like, what the hell? I don't remember reading that. Meanwhile, he's living in this white world and making a pretty good profit from it. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. You know, you got to just go back to Walt Whitman and say, do I contradict myself? I contradict myself. <laughs> he's grown up in a world in which African-American life is segregated in every sense. And I want to make a distinction between separatism, which mm -hmm. is what the Nation of Islam um, promoted and which he um, spoke about, and segregation. Okay. But he lived in a segregated world in which he had to look through the chain-like fence at white people at an amusement park in Louisville. He couldn't do that. Many things prescribed. It's still the same today. Um, my friend Chris Rock says, you know, in one of his routines, you know, I'm a multimillionaire and none of you would change places for a second with right. me. You know, and COVID reminded us that, you know, mm -hmm. suddenly we, we could have a, a, a more significant racial reckoning about George Floyd because suddenly we knew what, that we were taking our lives in our hand to go to the convenience store. This is what African-Americans have felt in America for centuries. Mm -hmm. I can't go to the store without worrying that my son's not going to come back. Right. I mean, so that's that's a reality there. So you've got the movement towards integration, which has been really slow and really deliberate. And a lot of people are getting fed up with it. Mm -hmm. You've got this hybrid sect. It's not really Islam. It's a kind of do for self thing It borrows from Islam. It's got this fantastical, you know, backstory about black people ruling the world for trillions of years until they were betrayed by white devils. This is part of the nation of Islam. It's a cult. And the cults right. provide a certain amount of security. He's a young man. I mean, it even had involvement of a UFO, which yeah. I thought was quite exciting. And yeah. yeah, there's a spaceship, spaceship yeah. circling the earth that's gonna, you know, come on Judgment Day. So, but a lot of it is really um, appealing to uh, mainly Northern blacks and poor blacks who are looking for this sense of of do for self, of of your own businesses and your own, their, you know, all of this stuff. And that's been a recurring tradition um, since, you know, the beginning of, of significant black leadership of Frederick Douglass, of W.E.B. Du Bois, of Booker T. Washington, of Marcus Garvey, of Ida B. Wells at the turn of the century and, and, and before that. So this is a, a kind of classic manifestation of that. And it seems to be in opposition to the traditional civil rights movement. So he's going to say, He's going to parrot um, the, he, he doesn't agree with uh, Wallace, except in that Wallace said, if, if they don't want you to come into your neighborhood, why would you ever want to do that? He's not necessarily right, right on this argument. Um, he's just speaking a reality that supports his particular position. But the most important point that you made is he's surrounded by white people and he's been integrated in his life and in his faith and in his love and in his caring for other people. He's the only boxer not connected in any way to the mob because these white Louisville businessmen look at this guy coming home, a local boy who's made good from the Rome Olympics with a gold medal in his mm -hmm. hand, and we're going to protect him from the demon jackals of the mob. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Hollywood. We'll make up a, a, a uh, you know, what they do for Shirley Temple and kids contracts. And we're going to pay him half his gate. We're going to pay him a salary. We're going to pay all his expenses and insulate him. And so he's already tied to these rich, white, 
Southern men. Yeah. It's already mind-blowing. And then he's attracted. For the first time in his life, he feels there's some order in what he's hearing from the nation of Islam. And he's drawn to it. Everybody's permitted in our country to worship what Absolutely. you want to worship. That is his legitimate faith. And even those Kentucky businessmen acknowledge that. We all believe that a man should, you know, have what he, his faith. And that if it's a hate group, he says to a reporter, one of the white businessmen, He's not part of it because there's not a bone of hate in this person. And that's the key. Right. This man, there's, you know, the shot early on when he's training in the Fifth Street gym and then the Beatles visit, they've just invaded the United mm -hmm. States. And there's a setup shot where it looks like he's knocking them down like a row of dominoes, right? Yes. You go, that's the greatest concentration of love, I think, in the 1960s, right there. It wasn't Woodstock. Right. It wasn't there. It was these five men, Cassius Clay, soon to be Muhammad Ali. Yeah. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. They yeah. took out from whatever job they happened to be, a couple guys were imitating American rhythm and blues and, and other forms and rock, and this guy was becoming a boxer accidentally because somebody mm -hmm. stole his bike. Um, yeah. and, and they're practicing their profession, which is really prophets of love. So it, to me, it's a great story. And all of that stuff in between is just the, to me, exquisitely interesting undertow. Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka golden ticket scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated golden ticket scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka golden ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka golden ticket is all mine. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. I want to talk a little bit uh, in a second about what a marketing genius Muhammad Ali was. What a freaking man who understood media. He understood who, kayfabe. He understood kayfabe. He was just, I mean, of course, he got uh, much of his style um, from a professional wrestler, as a matter yeah, of fact. Gorgeous George. Gorgeous yeah. George, who was flamboyant over the top. Because he saw, in a way that all great kind of promoters and hucksters and things like that is that you didn't need, they didn't need to like you. They right. just needed to buy a ticket. He said exactly. that, he said that in that interview. He's like, as long as they pay, they, yeah, don't, they can come just and boo. Pay, boo, hiss, do whatever, but pay to get in. But the thing was, is that he had a transcendent love of life, a joie de vivre, the French call it, that, that just transcended whatever Gorgeous George or P.T. Barnum or any huckster out there is about. And right. that, that is so infectious, even at the time of great division in this country, where his his moving towards the nation of Islam, his refusing induction into the draft, all of it caused huge divisions and yes, hatred directed towards him. He also attracted lots of people who just loved him. And by the time people realized he was right on Vietnam and that He'd already embraced a much more ecumenical version of Islam that not the, the sort of rigid form of the nation of Islam, um, more what Malcolm X discovered, more what 
Islam is about, that all of a sudden, I mean, you you were right to say, Ben, that, you know, he's, he's controversial now. But remember, yes. he also, he just died five years ago. Right. But he died the most beloved person on the planet, right. which is, I defy you, you know. That's something to aim for, right? It really is. It, it, he died at the peak uh, in many ways, of course, lighting the Olympic torch and uh, just being remembered as a total icon. But again, going back a little bit uh, to the name change, this is, you know, obviously we live now in a society where, you know, whether it be someone who is a transgender or whatever, whatever it may be, uh, transitions uh, people exploring themselves. It was interesting when he changed his name to Muhammad Ali. Of course, the only person uh, was Howard Cosell that uh, that acknowledged him. Uh, but at, actually, Howard didn't for a while. For a while, he was pushing back and calling him Cassius and whatever. Right. But Howard Howard came to an understanding earlier of what it meant. Just like when people say, I'd like you to use the they, them pronouns. And people are going crazy. Oh, this is a woke culture. People went insane that this yes. man was going to change his name from what they said was a slave name, right. which it was, to a new name that was allowed him to be free. This is a classic American story. Can we just say that? Absolutely. This is about a guy who wants to be free. How un-American is that? And he's going to change his name doing it, which he can do. And he's yeah. going to worship whatever God he wants to do, which we are allowed to do. Exactly. And he's going to pursue what he wants to pursue, which we're allowed to do. And he's going to be successful at it as a businessman. He's going to be the best at his job that he's going to do it. And on top of that, he's going to try to spread love around the world. You know, yeah. he just wanted to be free. And of course, the religion uh, ended up truly being his saving grace. As Ken yes. mentioned, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, they found a, uh, a carve out, or rather the uh, an individual found a, a mistake, and they said this is his true religious belief. Uh, Muhammad Ali proved it. And, I it mean, basically, they said that the Kentucky Draft Board had not stated the reason why yeah. they did not, they refused his appeal as a conscientious objector. And because they did not state it, he had been denied a due process, and so... That was it, right. you know? So when it comes to the name change uh, and Cosell obviously being able to get access and they had this great yeah. uh, bickering relationship, almost cartoonish, uh, the mm -hmm. way that they would go after each other. But there was a love there. And uh, perhaps it did take Cosell, as you mentioned, uh, you know, a little bit of time uh, to come around to referring to then Cassius to, as Muhammad Ali. But all you have to do, what I was thinking when I was watching that, just acknowledge somebody's belief and acknowledge what somebody wants. And that person will then open themselves to you. Exactly. And I just felt like Cosell, what do you think his role was just from a journalistic perspective of really just kind of giving him a, a theater, giving him a, a camera, giving him just the, you know, just something to play with. Howard Cosell needed Muhammad Ali more than Muhammad Ali needed Howard Cosell. Mm. Uh, and Howard Cosell realized that if he got on the bandwagon of Muhammad Ali, not Cassius Clay, and tried to be fair, that he would have more access to the most colorful person around, the greatest yeah. kind of showman that we had at, at that period of time. It's interesting that Cosell's dead. We would have loved to interview him. But there are a few people that we do have in the film who were young guys coming up, covering him at the same time and getting the same kind of access, yeah. like Robert Lipsight and Dave Kindred and Jerry Eisenberg. And their love and affection for him is is so great, but it's not without their ability to criticize him. The, his belligerent 
treatment of of people, his his unfaithfulness, his his uh, racist. Uh, remarks about his opponents, particularly Joe Frazier, his yes. main rival. All of these are the undertow of his life, and yet there is a love that they all felt for him in a way that that all of us do. I mean, this is one of the most important people that lived in the second half of the of the 20th century and well into 15, 16 years into this 21st century. Um, you know what? I've done a lot of biographies. This guy. He's he's something else, you know. His yeah. his daughter Rashida, who carries a little bit of of his heart in her heart, mm-hmm. and it's very impressive. She says at the very end of the film, you know, boxing was this much, and she pinches her fingers together, and you realize, of course, this guy was destined for something. You you, you don't just put on some gloves and a couple of fights later say you're going to be the greatest when you still don't know anything about boxing, exactly. unless it wasn't about boxing. It was about something bigger than that, and yeah. he was the greatest, and it, it was. Was not that he was perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect person. Heroes aren't perfect. They are, in fact, stories about how people negotiate, sometimes have a war between their strengths and their weaknesses. Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his, his great strengths. And so right. we look at Muhammad Ali as a classic kind of mythic tale and a hero's journey. And it's a classically American one at the same time, because yeah. what he wants is freedom. He wants to be who he is. And we live in a society where we don't permit African-Americans to be who they are. And many of us imprison ourselves, enslave ourselves with our hatred for Jews or blacks or our our obsession with money or status or looks or whatever. And so he understood a little bit about liberation. You can see that he can brag. And then all of a sudden, if he loses, he speaks in calm voices about, I need to show that people that losses come into everybody's life. I yes. mean, it's, he is an amazing figure. And, and right there as as good a teacher now, you know, I remember um, when Michael J. Fox announced that he had Parkinson's mm-hmm. a few years later, someone maybe it was 60 minutes did it, or maybe I read it someplace, but he said, I couldn't be still until I couldn't be still. Mm. And I think in a way, Muhammad Ali, the biggest mouth of the last, you know, 70 years, mm-hmm. he couldn't really talk until he couldn't talk. That is to say, once he was imprisoned by this disease, Parkinson's, mm-hmm. he suddenly became even greater than he was before. The silence brought a humility, humbled him, sent him searching for redress for his sins, infidelity, the pushing away of Malcolm X, the the harsh treatment of Joe Frazier, all of it trying to repair. Um, and, and all the while looking for people in the world who are poor. You know, he was notoriously generous. And I say yes. notoriously, which is a fairly... Uh, pejorative description because he, you know, Angelo Dundee said, there's a guy in the history gym over there in a wheelchair. He goes, that guy's a hustler. He's going to tell you he's Roy Campanella. Don't give him any money. And next thing you know, Angelo turns around and, and Ali's giving him, you know, this roll of bills. And he goes up to him and he goes, why'd you do that? You know, he's a hustler. And he goes, Ange, we've got legs. Exactly. You know, (laughs) you just kind of go, who is this person? And he's 22 or 21 or, you know, he's 17 and he's got, you know, he, he won over Rome. 
you know, when he was 19 years old, uh, they fell in love with him. I mean, Jim McKay doing the the, yeah. the uh, hosting says, you know, the person with the most Roman name is Marcel, you know, Cassius Marcellus Clay mm-hmm. Jr. from Louisville, Kentucky. And, you know, even the Russians fell in love with him. It, it even, was, the Russians. Even, even the Russians. Even the Russians fell in love with him. We're speaking with Ken Burns. He is the documentarian along with a list of other people that uh, did an incredible job. Uh, Muhammad Ali, September 19th. It'll be on PBS. Make sure you check out this entire series. It is so unbelievably uh, compelling. And I want to talk a little bit about Joe Frazier and the lead up to that fight. Uh, But before that, just kind of going back, one of the things, again, talking about the manipulation of Muhammad Ali and the foresight, like I was thinking if Muhammad Ali had TikTok, can you imagine? (laughs) Can you just imagine? Like, again, in any era, He's controversial and he's famous and he's rich and he's a great freaking boxer, like in any era or UFC fighter now, who the heck knows? When it came to some of the most iconic images, like him underwater boxing, I thought that was maybe one of the funniest stories. And I don't really want, I guess I'm ruining it, but whatever. Um, it is. Um, I think we can ruin, we'll let you ruin another scene. Come on, Thank man. you. Let's ruin one more. But anyway, I did not realize. So he takes the photographer. He's like, yeah, you want to see me train underwater? He goes underwater and takes some of the most iconic photos of all time. Everyone around Ali is like, you don't train underwater, dude. But like <laughs> that, that idea of like knowing that this image is going to be something special. <laughs> I, that's again, that's Angelo Dundee. You can't train that. You guide it. You guide it, right? The the Buddhists have this wonderful saying of a very clever, very, very wise man. They said he can sell water by the river. Yeah. And, you know, Muhammad Ali could sell water by the river. And I, I just, <laughs> I, that's, that's, you know, he just makes you smile because he just had a different way of putting things together. And if we try to make comparisons with today, it's it's really not fair. Right. The thing is, social media isn't, right? It's mm-hmm. a social media. Mm-hmm. It means that you are not with other people. You are by yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so he was always with other people. He was always drawing a crowd and he was always willing to it. He was not using the mantle of celebrity to, to put himself in an isolated bubble and, and offer, you know, balmos from on high. He's out there with the people and he was so insistent that he represent, that's his word, represent my people and not forget where he came from. And that's really important. He says, I'm the first one that got on your white TV, on your white satellites, on your white airplanes. And he goes, but I'm still representing my people and I'm still right here. And that was it. He had time for every human being. And there is something so phenomenally dangerous about social media. We all know what it is in terms of reputations, of destroying people, of of the political manipulations, of the spreading of misinformation, of, of election meddling, all of mm-hmm. that sort of stuff just makes it an overall negative. But it also, remember, pulls you away from what the word social is about. Mm. This is a social media is a substitute for connecting with other people. And that's what we ought to be doing is be, I mean, look, COVID prevents us from being in the same studio together, but we're four guys just trying to have a conversation, right? Right. And that's really the essence of what we do. We're telling stories to one another. We're asking questions. We're trying to figure out who the other is. We're trying to listen to who they are um, and appreciate who they are. That that, that just doesn't take place uh, very much in social media. And of course, Muhammad Ali being such an unbelievable communicator, 
can never be understated how uh, how much he helped uh, people heal uh, from yes. racial injustice as well. These things that you you never know when somebody saves a bunch of lives. You only know when the plane crashes. And That's so we right. don't know, uh, you know, what an unbelievable positive impact, even though he is so well, famous. Well, there's a shot in the very end of the film where there's a woman, black woman, marching on the Brooklyn Bridge. We deliberately don't show you what it is. And her black T-shirt in white letters says Muhammad Ali. So clear, you know, Walter Mosley earlier in the film said, somebody said something about Vietnam. And I said, I don't think I should go over there and kill those people. And he said, I thought it was my idea. And right. only later I realized that Muhammad Ali had planted that idea in me. Exactly. And that he had that power by the force of his right, by the courage. You know, this is a 20-year-old kid saying, no, I'm not going to do this. Well, you're going to go to jail. He said, I'd, I'd, I'd face a machine gun. Yeah. Then, then go against my, my faith. And people are going, oh, come on. And they're so angry at him. And they're reducing it to the simple political binary thing. Well, some mother's son is going off to war and, and you're not, you know, whatever. And he could have had a cushy job. He would have done USO shows. Exactly. And, you know, sparring matches and stuff. And he knew that too. And he wasn't going to cop out. He was saying, this is what I believe. Yeah. And, you know, he lost three and a half years at the prime of his career. And, and a when lot of he money. was trying to make money, mm -hmm. he said, I got to go out and I got to make some money. And he got kicked out of the Nation of Islam because uh, Elijah Muhammad had taught that Allah would always provide. And you were saying, oh, no, he wouldn't provide. I got to go do something about it. But out on the hustings, he starts reaching out to students and connecting. And all of a sudden, many of those people who had sort of been opposed to a brash, uppity, they said, mm -hmm. Negro, who was not behaving the way Negroes were supposed to behave at that time, was suddenly saying black. And it was saying black is beautiful and I'm beautiful. Look how pretty I am, he's saying, driving lots of people crazy, but also instilling in people a sense of possibility and a sense of hope and not just black people. I remember growing up, Muhammad Ali was a hero of mine. I mean, we were against the war. My dad was against the war. I was against the war. He was against the war. That that was what meant something, you know? Yeah. When Carlos and Smith put their fists up in Mexico City, we were going, yeah, those guys never worked again. Muhammad Ali had three and a half hours. Colin Kaepernick, everybody else who takes a political stand, they're not risking anything. If they really thought their Nike deal was going to disappear or they're going to lose their contract, they wouldn't do it. Absolutely. This is why, you know, Kaepernick is the one person that connects us to Smith and Carlos and Muhammad Ali most, most particularly. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started. And I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about the Vietnam War here in a second, but you know, just before that, you mentioned some of the stereotypes uh, that uh, that Ali was able to address, and some of the "black is beautiful" rhetoric he was able to bring into the mainstream. 
That's also an interesting conundrum because we're going to skip over the Liston stuff. You've got to watch the documentary to find out what happened with Liston because those are two fights. Very interesting things very, occurred. We'll let the, we'll let the, uh, yes, we'll let the sports centers of the world it's debate. Still mysteries, yep. Whatever. We'll let uh, Max Kellerman or whatever debate that. Um, but when it came to Frazier and the lead up to that fight, uh, many black scholars say that they were kind of, you know, disappointed in Muhammad Ali. The things that he was saying, yes, he was saying, I'm beautiful. But then he goes and he really refers to Frazier in some of the worst epitaphs you can. Uh, he calls him stupid, says he can't talk, you know, basically does the what Southern people or what, what many white people said about black people. Uh, he said about Frazier, of yeah. course, in the uh, in the confines of being Muhammad Ali. But what were your thoughts when you looked through some of that archival footage and you're like, damn, he went in, like he went in big time on Frazier. But meanwhile, being a representative of the African-American community. You know, there was a comic strip by Walt Kelly in the 1940s that was popular with my parents called Pogo. And at one point, the main character says, we have met the enemy and he is us. We are all our own worst enemies. And we spend our lives trying to make sure that the enemy is somebody else, that you did this to me, or I'm worried about you, or you scare me, or, or whatever it is. You know, he was able to promote himself by belittling, doing the psychological game, and then he took it too far. And with Joe Frazier, he took it way, way too far. And it's Todd Boyd, who you're uh, talking about, who's a professor of uh, media studies at, and film at USC. And he's saying he's using the language of the that the white racist would use to dismiss a black man. And he's trying to position himself in the... Interesting thing is that in the lead up to the first Frazier fight in 71, it is the fight of the century, without a doubt. I mean, it's. I made a film on Jack Johnson, yes. who was the first African awesome. American. And the fight of the century was supposed to be July 4th in Reno, Nevada, when um, Jack Johnson dispatched easily the greatest of all white hopes sent up against him, Jack, Jim Jeffries, um, which caused white on black uh, riots all across the country. Many, many people, African Americans, were killed or murdered. Mm. Um, anyway, this is an, a lead up in all of the kind of sort of black establishment is for Ali. You know, people on the street are for Ali. A lot of white people are for Frazier, if only to shut up Ali mm -hmm. because of the Vietnam stance and his braggadocio stuff. And it, it, it's so interesting, uh, a fight. It is the dynamics in very subtle ways of, of so much we, of, of what is still echoing and going on. And, and I think the commentators in our film, mostly black, really help contain and understand what it is. It is possible, as Todd Boyd says, to use his powers for evil instead of for good, you know? Yeah. And the implication is, is that this is a superhero. Exactly. And of course, he's right. It is yeah. a superhero. And he is also right that though he spent a lifetime using it for good, his powers for good, mm -hmm. he also in many instances used it for bad. And Absolutely. one of those instances is, is his relationship for Frazier. And he came to understand that too. Yes. And of course, anyone who, even if you work at McDonald's and you survive the lunch rush, you're also a hero in my mind, because <laughs> that I worked at fast food. That's hard as hell. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Or or can we say a nurse in an ICU? Today? Exactly. So, uh, Fernando, you have a question you want to get in? I want to uh, basically uh, you had a Mark Twain quote at the very beginning about the history, history rhyming. I want to ask a little bit if 
if you think America has changed, because uh, I, I see a lot of parallels between Emmett Till and George Floyd. You know, mm-hmm. I see I see the same situation. I still see the situation of a, a colored person speaking out that it'll get in the way of their career. I mean, you mentioned Colin Kaepernick, but he's not in the same situation as uh, Muhammad Ali. I don't think we're going to see him on the cover of Esquire as, uh, you know, St. Sebastian. No. But do you think America has changed as a, as a um, performer and in, in terms of race? Yes, we have. And no, we haven't. And and let me just try to, you know, get out from under my dodge there for you. For <laughs> That's a, a really smart, thoughtful question. Um, let's go back. Let's let's ignore Mark Twain for a second and go back to Ecclesiastes, which is the Old Testament. It says what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun which means that human nature doesn't change. And it doesn't, you know, it superposes itself over the random chaos of events. And we kind of perceive themes and motifs, rhymes, as Mark Twain would say. And so I think so much of what happens today can be helped, our understanding of it, Fernando, can be helped by virtue of the fact that if we are aware of our past, we have a much greater hold or perspective on what's happening now, the frustrations of it, but also the successes of it. And Uh so there have been progress, there have been steps backwards, we're struggling with this all the time. Race is, you know, as as historians have said, is the American original sin. You know, we were were founded July 4, 1776, we know where Philadelphia, we know what we believe in, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. But the guy who wrote that Mm -hmm. owned hundreds of other people and didn't see the hypocrisy or contradiction. And so we're still struggling with that, still to this day. And so not one Muhammad Ali, Emmett Till moment, not one George Floyd, because there's, you know, they're just caught on picture. His mama said, okay, open that casket. That's the bravest thing any mom has ever done. This is a a mutilated, distorted face. Mm -hmm. It's so horrible to look at those pictures. You see them on the the, uh, online. You can't look at them for long and think about her baby. And then, of course, we could see Rodney King being beaten, or we could watch the excruciating murder of George Floyd. this has been going on though for a long, long time. So things get better, things same. We've got to believe as Americans yeah. that things will incrementally get better. And we're in a real trough right now. We're in a really deep and difficult and dangerous trough. And part of it comes from the fact that, as I say, I've, I've spent almost 50 years making films about the US, mm-hmm. but I've also been at the same time making films about us. That is to say the two letter lowercase plural pronoun. All the intimacy and warmth of us and we and our and all of the majesty, the complexity, the contradiction and the controversy of the U.S. And what I've learned in all of those years is that there's only us. There's no them. And anytime anybody tells you there's a them, run away. Because this is the engine of our disunion. That's, that's what it's always been historically, Fernando. That's where it's been possible to divide a wedge. It's always come back. And let's hope this time it is able to come back and the, the better angels of our nature as Abraham Lincoln, you know, reassert themselves. Uh, but it doesn't happen unless people act, actually practice the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Remember that. No, there's no them. There's 
only us. I think that is just fantastic advice. And look inside of yourself, and uh, I think that you'll find, uh, indeed, that that is the case. Uh, a lot of people on social media talk about the outgroup. So Democrats talk Republicans, Republicans talk about Democrats. No one is self-reflective. And I think once you are self-reflective, you do realize it is just us. You mentioned the original sin of America being racism. Slavery, uh, there's, another, yeah. there's another sin, uh, violence. Um, America, we have the largest military in the world. When it comes to the Vietnam War, and you talk about Emmett Till and uh, his mother making the unbelievably brave, hard decision to show the world the violence. We were seeing the violence of Vietnam on the screens uh, every night, and uh, we saw the devastation of the soldiers coming back. We saw the devastation of the bombs that we left behind. Uh, when it comes to Muhammad Ali and his relationship with the white uh, or anti-left or anti-war left, rather, which was of many, many white people, did that relationship, that seemed to be like a Venn diagram where, yes, he had uh, the Nation of Islam beliefs and uh, he was very controversial uh, in, in when talking about race in many ways. But when it came to the Vietnam War, how important was was that to Muhammad Ali to coalesce a really, a, he was the leader of the anti-war movement, which was begin, just beginning. Uh, and can you explain or talk a little bit about how that, how did that ingratiate him to other communities? And then of course, you know, excommunicate him from some of the people who may have liked him in the past. Yeah, it's, it's so complicated. I mean, he's not the leader, but in during his exile years, you know, he's out there and, and, a, and, a, and a really appropriate spokesman. And remember his views on race, separation, whatever, are always evolving. They're always right. changing. And he's always belying that by his full integration into society. And his preaching the gospel of the of Elijah Muhammad and at the same time being an anti-war, he's overlapping with a lot of white people who are probably not interested in boxing, <laughs> but are interested in him and therefore interested in boxing because they're going to follow him. And so there are people who never watched a, a game, a, a, a boxing match, but watched, you know, uh, the Thrilla in Manila or the Rumble in the Jungle before that, his fight with George Foreman. They're following their, their hero, um, into the breach. And so he's he's developing lots of following. He's also alienating a lot of people because of his stance on Vietnam. But as several of the people in our film say, in, including sort of man on the street or men in Vietnam, African-American soldiers in Vietnam, um, he, you know, one of our, our, our commentators said, you know, I was in the military at the time and you'd think that I'd be opposed. I wasn't. And I found some of the most radical people in the U.S. military. And, and there we, we sample three, four soldiers who were saying, no, I agree with him. This is why I'm fighting here, right, is for him to be able to have his particular point of view and his beliefs. So I think what happens is sometimes we're faced with someone, as I was saying earlier, this guy wants freedom, right? This is like an essential American thing. And that's causing all sorts of troubles, mainly because he's a black man, mainly because he's a very talented black man, which can be threatening to some people, Absolutely. mainly because he's not afraid of, he doesn't hide his light under a bushel. And so that's also threatening to some people. And But all he wants is the same thing that everybody else wants, is to be free of those things that hold us down. And yeah. so he's, he's on a trajectory that is going to increase the size of the overlap of your Venn diagram, Ben. You're never going to get some people. Of There's course. always going to be some people who are going to, you know, be the guy, you know, the, 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 the racist who it just can't, can't hear anything that he said or the gung-ho patriot that thinks that, 
an opposition to the war is unpatriotic. Right. It is being opposed to what your government doing as that same person may be doing right now is, is as American as apple pie. And it is, uh, there's something ultimately extremely ironic about, um, Muhammad Ali being a peaceful man as he is <laughs> one of the most brutal, beautiful boxers of all time. It's I mean, just, some of the fight there, footage was... Isn't, isn't that the ultimate contradiction? In fact, one of my contributions to the script is pretty late in the editing. I said, we got to address this in the opening, in the narration. Yeah. You know, he was a master <laughs> at the brutal uh, art of boxing, what's called the sweet science. And you yeah. just go... What is sweet about this? But you begin <laughs> exactly. to accrue an understanding of the things that he did that were all wrong. You know, it's like that batter who's hitting 350 and he's got the worst batting stance, according to the teachers, but nobody wants to change it because he's batting 350. Exactly. So, you know, with a Muhammad Ali, you duck punches, you don't lean back. He would lean back all the time, and you just don't do that. And, you know, unfortunately, later on, it caught up with him. And, and because of his inability to quit, he took way too many blue O's, which yeah. probably undoubtedly uh, precipitated the, the Parkinson's, the neurological disease that yeah. uh, imprisoned him in one way and liberated him in another, as I was saying. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when it comes to uh, Muhammad Ali, my goodness, what a complex, unbelievable character. Thank you so much for being with us. I have. Is it okay if we get one more question in from sure. Travis? Okay, sure. uh, thank you so much for taking a little extra time. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to. Great conversation, guys. Really great conversation. Uh, Travis is also a documentarian, so whatever. Uh, so this might be whatever hey, you want. Travis, what are you working on? Oh, well, nothing now. I mean, this has been... <laughs> Pretty amazing to just listen to. Um, I love that you worked on this with your daughter, and um, I want to know what advice you gave her, and I want to know what advice you have for other young documentary filmmakers aspiring yeah. or struggling, um, not just in how you pick your topics, but how do you see it through to completion? Yeah, I think that that's the, that's the key question, Travis. You know, I'm very lucky. I'm so happy that my oldest daughter, I have four, um, and they all, I, I never pushed them in any way. They all came to it organically. My second daughter is a professional filmmaker in totally different area. You know, she produces Desus and Mero and Russian oh, Doll nice. and Search Party and oh, wow. Broad City and, and uh, Samantha them, yeah. B, stuff like that. She's really hot shit. Um, and then I got two youngins and they are always my, my littlest one, 10 year old, showed me uh, a movie they'd made uh, you know, today, you know, it's, it's great. So the, my advice will be, and sound light, and I apologize in advance, Travis, like platitudes. There are two of them. Um, one is you have to know who you are. Uh, there's something really attractive about this filmmaking medium. It is hard, hard work. I don't know anybody who works harder than the people that I work with. And it's seven days a week. It's every single day. And it's almost Socratic. At some point you have to go know who you are. Who are you? And there is absolutely no shame in pursuing it and then you saying, you know what, I don't have something to say or I'm not willing to put, you know, myself through this. And then the other thing is, is obviously leaning out of that is perseverance. You know, I used to carry two gigantic three ring binders, you know, the kinds that are like four inches wide. Mm -hmm each with a single page rejection letter from all the, the places that I was trying to raise money for my first film on the Brooklyn Bridge. And I used wow. to keep them on my desk for years and years and years as a reminder 
You know, how many times I got, dear Mr. Burns, thank you so much, but at this time we were uninterested. One line, just it. And I had worked on letters, for, you know, back before there was computers and word processing and we had correct a type and you had to retype the thing, whatever it was, to give them a two-page letter about it. And, you know, I looked 12 years old and they would say, oh, this kid is trying to sell me the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. No. And, you know, I just think that there are probably lots of other filmmakers with greater talent, but I just stuck with it. I just kept going. You know, I moved to this t little town, to this house that I'm living in, in New Hampshire, 42 years ago this week, because I, I couldn't, you know, live in New York and, and do what I had to get a real job, you know, <laughs> an air quote real job uh, in order to do it. And then I realized I wouldn't finish this film. So I came up here to finish the film called Brooklyn Bridge. It was nominated for Academy Award. People said, come back to New York, going to L.A. I said, no, I'm staying right here. 42 wow. years later, I'm still here and I'm still working just as hard. And that tells you that yeah, I, I am so lucky, just like Muhammad Ali, he knew what he was supposed to do. And I don't mean boxing. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to tell the stories of us, of the US, of us. And uh, I think that you have guided this country in a great direction and the world and you've I mean, you have educated so many millions upon millions of maybe even billions of people um, with your art, your work. Um, just thank you so much for your perseverance for the truth uh, and not getting sucked into all the other BS that the uh, air quotes documentarians do. Uh, <laughs> I just I just love your work so much. So thank you so much for being with us again. This is Ken Burns, Muhammad Ali. It premieres September 19th on one of the greatest television networks of all time. PBS, PBS. Uh, check it out. Thank you so much for being on the show, Ken. We really appreciate it, man. It's been my pleasure. This has been a like an oasis for me today. I'd been doing tons and tons of interviews, and it was just great to just be able to kick back and and just sort of um, talk to you guys about you know what's in my heart. All right, there it was, everyone. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that interview. And uh, yeah, I hope you learned something too. What a remarkable dude. One of the things wow. that I loved was he said, you know what? I'm out of New York. I'm out of LA. I'm going to New Hampshire. Right. That. And that's where he does <laughs> everything. That. So you can be an artist anywhere. And remember that you don't have to be uh, because of, you know, technology and all of that kind of stuff, wherever you feel inspired, that's where you should be. Yeah. I like the advice he gave Travis. Uh, I think it's a, it, it's relevant to anyone who wants to follow their dreams. It's like, are you willing to do this? Is this something that you want to do and work hard at? Because it, you may want to do it, but if it's really hard work and you don't want to work hard, then it's not going to work out. And to finish the project, I mean, he mentioned how this was what, an eight, nine year project, it sounded like? Yes. I mean, and, and to think that, you know, yes, we're all kind of separated and, and doing technical work from wherever, but he's been up there 42 years. He said 42 years this week. That's I mean, awesome. that is just so impressive. I mean, the dedication, the storytelling skills, the thoughtfulness, um, just I'm completely blown away. Yeah, dude. I was like, I was telling Ken, uh, I was a little nervous because this is a big, it was yeah. a big conversation. Right. He's like a total idol. I was much more nervous for Ken Burns than Ken Bone. No offense to the Kens, <laughs> but I love the Kens. But yeah. We love our Kens here on the show. They're both fantastic people. But Ken Burns, again, thank you uh, for coming on the show and thanks to everyone uh, for listening and check out the Muhammad Ali documentary September 19th on PBS and check out everything he's done because his Vietnam War, the war. Well, the Nashville one. I've been begging you to watch that for weeks. Yeah, the country music mm -hmm. document. I mean, just it goes on and on and on. This man is a he truly is an educator. 
Really. This guy's yeah. phenomenal. So, anyway, all right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Can't wait to see you on the road very soon. Hail yourselves. We'll talk to you soon. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.